But John chapter 19 is where we're headed. Lord, help us this morning. We do thank you, Lord, for the great cost that you paid Jesus on the cross. As we open up your word, as we ponder some things from Scripture this morning, I pray that you would open up our hearts, you'd give us eyes to see you, Lord Jesus, more clearly this morning. Amen. Amen. So in our modern world, there are perhaps two kinds of people. Those who like to prefer to read things on a screen, like an iPad or a tablet or a Kindle or things like that. Or those who prefer to read on actual paper, open up a book or a document or things like that. Now, I won't show, ask for a show of hands, but there are many scientific studies and research that have delved into the effect of, of screens and scrolling on how we retain information and how our brains work. But aside from all that this morning, if you're like me, if there is ever something particularly important that I need to pay attention to, that I need to focus on, I will print it out and read over it. I, I much prefer to have the paper version in front of me. That was always my practice at university, you know, working for hours and hours on an essay, seeing it on the screen, it kind of all just blends into one. So it was always I'd print it off and have a proofread before submitting it. And for me, anyway, there's a reason for this. Sometimes when we've looked at something for a while, it can be easy to miss things, can't it? It can be easy to skim over or gloss over important details. You become so familiar that your mind just kind of fills in some blanks. So I find it helpful to have a, a fresh set of eyes, to be able to see clearly, to be able to notice the things that need to be noticed. There's an old song by Matt Redman called Once Again, and I've been using it in my own times of worship recently. It's been blessing my heart. And the words of the chorus go like this. It says, once again, I look upon the cross where you died. I'm humbled by your mercy and I'm broken inside. Once again, I thank you. Once again, I pour out my life. So it's my prayer for us gathered here this morning, those joining us online here on Good Friday, 2023, that we would once again take the time to look upon the cross where Jesus died, that we would come with a fresh set of eyes, as it were, so that we don't just become over-familiar or unaffected, so that we don't just kind of skim over or miss important things for us to see about the cross of Christ. And I pray that the wonder and the power of the cross comes alive in our hearts afresh today as we once again look upon the cross. And with a fresh set of eyes, I want to spend some time looking this morning at the cause, the cost, the completed work, and the call of the cross. So in John chapter 19, verse 28, after Jesus' betrayal, after his arrest, after his unjust trial, after he'd been mocked and beaten and spat on and scourged, after ultimately he'd been condemned to be crucified, we read this in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour, sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is a phrase that is significant for us in so many ways. It is finished. And I want to get there. I want to spend some time focusing on that. That's where we're going to be landing today. But first, for us to grasp the significance of this phrase and what it is finished means, we must also grasp and understand just what the it was, just what needed to be finished, what needed to be dealt with on our behalf. So would you turn with me? You can keep your finger there in John chapter 19. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 this morning? And if I'm honest, I've been wrestling a bit with this as it's a bit of a different passage that I feel the Lord had put on my heart this week to be opening up to on Good Friday. But without Genesis 3, we wouldn't have Good Friday, would we? Without Genesis 3, we wouldn't have the Scriptures as we know it, as Scripture documents and paints a picture of the fallout from the fall and God's plan of redemption outworked and ultimately finding its fulfillment in Jesus' death and resurrection. So let's read together from verse 1 of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. As we look once again at the cross and see it with fresh eyes, we're reminded of the cause. The devastating consequences of sin and the shame, the death, and the subsequent separation from God. And all of this I put to you this morning forms what is the it of it is finished. As we look at this passage, we see the effects of sin. We see the devastating work of the enemy to steal and kill and destroy. But we also see a glimmer of hope in God's plan and purpose of redemption. 
And so on Good Friday, it's important for us to grasp the gravity of sin, the cause, if you like, of the cross. And that when that choice was made in that garden to violate God's command and order, that it changed the course of history, it changed the course of mankind. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5 that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all man because all sinned. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul again writes, as in Adam, all die. See, God sees the first Adam as the head of the human race and that when he sinned, because it affected all of humanity, that it's like we also sinned in him and suffered the consequences of our sin as a result. As we look at the passage, the enemy comes disguised as the serpent and he brought lies and doubt and confusion and temptation and his strategy has not changed. He causes us to question and doubt God's goodness and who he says he is. He tempts and twists the truth and ultimately he deceives. We also see that the nature of sin hasn't changed. And at its basic level, it stems from this lack of trust in God, his nature, what he has said, that he knows best and has our best interests at heart. It stems from our desire to be in control, not under his lordship. It appeals to our desires. It causes us to run and to hide. It brings separation from God. It causes us to shift the blame, to make excuses. You know, we we focus this part anyway on on sin and, and, and ponder and wrestle through that. It can be uncomfortable, particularly in the day and age that we live in. And it's easy to separate ourselves from the story at times. Sometimes I'll ask my kids when we're going through the kids' Bible and we come to this particular account, I'm like, what would you have done in this story? Oh, Dad, I would have listened to God. There's no way I would have taken the fruit. But to look with fresh eyes this morning at the beauty and the wonder and the work of the cross, we must once again realize the gravity of sin, that it was in fact our sin that caused Jesus to go to the cross. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, writes, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. So where are you at this Good Friday morning? Have you, like Adam and Eve, found yourself in that place of of doubt and confusion, questioning God's goodness, His love, His plan? Perhaps that's caused you to to push, push back a little bit and resist His Lordship because you want it your way. Perhaps you're in a place of temptation, not willing to resist it any longer, seeking to pursue your own paths and desires. Like Eve, you just see that as so appealing. Perhaps you're in a place this morning of just hiding away because of sin and shame, keeping God at arm's length. Perhaps you're in a place of making excuses, in denial about even needing any help at all. Let me encourage you, challenge you even this morning, that even in the midst of the mess, even in the midst of the hiding away, 
the Lord in the garden still seeks them out. He comes and says, where are you? Through the cross, because of his love and his mercy, he still seeks us out. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, his arms are still open wide. and He has made a way for relationship to be restored. There is good news for you and me this morning. Would you once again look upon the cross with fresh eyes to see that it is finished? To see that the issue of sin and shame and this need to run and hide and death, the cause, if you like, has been dealt with. That provision has been made. That's why the gospel is called good news, because it is the very best of news. But as we once again look upon the cross and see with fresh eyes, we're also reminded not just of the cause, but of the cost. The cost. There's a a saying, or I guess perhaps it's more of an idea or philosophy, that anything truly worth having, anything of value, if you like, comes at a cost. If you want that sandwich or that barbie, it comes at a cost. We see this through the God's redemption story, culminating at the cross. And even here in this passage, we've read at this, in this moment of pain, God speaks and he gives the first promise after sin entered the world, He proclaims, if you like, the the first indication of the gospel here in verse 15 of Genesis 3 because these words contain uh, the first promise of redemption in the Bible. Saying that the offspring, the seed, if you like, pointing us to Jesus would come and would crush the serpent's head. But in that process, his heel would be bruised at the cross. In other words, that a redeemer would come to win the victory over the enemy, but there would be cost and there would be pain. And if we had the time, we could look all through the prophetic scriptures throughout the Old Testament, pointing us to Jesus, pointing to the Messiah who would suffer and die from our sins. Andrew started this morning's service in Isaiah 53. Perhaps the the most well-known one of those prophetic pictures, that it was by his stripes we are healed. That the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That he was marred beyond human semblance. That he was the suffering servant. And then as we read the gospel accounts, which we're about to do, we read that Jesus, the Son of God, the King of glory, the one worthy of all honor and glory, was instead mocked, was flogged, Not just with a whip, although that would have been painful enough, but with a whip that embedded in its end was was bone and metal and all sorts of things designed to inflict the most pain and torment and torture. He was crowned not not with a crown of glory as he was due, but with a crown of thorns twisted together and forcefully shoved down onto his head. You might like to notice over there that the creative team have put together that crown of thorns, which, I don't know about you, I don't even want to touch. It looks so sharp and dangerous, let alone having that shoved upon your head. He was struck, he was spat on, he was robed, not with a kingly robe of honor, but with a robe in which he was mocked and taunted. A robe that when placed on his bleeding back was then ripped off. You see, there was a cost. 
And perhaps the greatest cost was the separation from his father. It was drinking the cup of God's wrath against sin and unrighteousness. The one perfectly innocent, the one perfectly righteous. He who knew no sin, becoming sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We can gain some insight into this cost as we look at this picture of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm sure many of us know the story well. And I find it interesting that it was in a garden that things first went pear-shaped, that things first were, were messed up, where the fall took place and the fallout began. But that it was in a garden where things were made right, where Jesus the prophesied Redeemer, chose a different path. So we know the story that Jesus is on his face praying. He's saying, is there any other way? If it's possible, Father, remove this cup from me. Yet, 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 not as I will, but as you will. Not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. Facing the temptation and the weight of the burden, the same choice really that was faced by Adam and Eve in that original garden. But Jesus obeyed instead of rebelling. He yielded to the Father's will instead of doing his own. He resisted the temptation instead of succumbing to it. At the cross, the enemy bruised Christ healed. There was pain, there was a cost involved, but because of his death and his resurrection, he crushed the enemy's head and won the victory. Which, of course, we'll celebrate in its fullness on Sunday. You see, as we once again look upon the cross and see it with fresh eyes, we see the, the cause, the cost, but we also see the completed work. We're going to turn back to John 19 as we bring this together as we come into land this morning. It says in verse 1 that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Let's jump down to verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. 
So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and his disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour his disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst, and a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. In the Greek, it is one word, tetelestai. It means more than just a a weak cry of surrender. An indication of his suffering being finished and about to breathe his last. No, the meaning encapsulated in this word is so much more than that. It's his cry of victory. What's contained in this word is this meaning of, I did exactly what I set out to do. Everything has been done. Everything has been paid in full. This word was used in a variety of ways, the the, the culture of the day. For servants, in that context, it was used, you know, when they completed a task given to them by their masters, it was, I've completed the work assigned to me. For priests, when examining an animal for sacrifice, finding it faultless, would apply this word. It it has this sense of completeness and uh, perfection attached to it. Used in the context of a prisoner, when a Roman citizen was convicted of a crime and thrown into prison with a certificate of debt, uh, was listed there and nailed to the door, listing all their crimes. But when they'd served their time, this particular word was stamped on that certificate of debt, indicating that everything was paid in full. And you know, for us, Jesus has done that at the cross, that our certificate of debt which lists all the things, all the ways that we have sinned and trespassed against God. As we turn to him through the cross, that same word is stamped on our certificates of debt. To tell us that it is finished. Everything has been paid in full. Here when Jesus utters this cry, it's in the perfect tense in the Greek. Now, this is significant for us because the perfect tense speaks of an action which has been completed in the past with results continuing in the present. It's different than the past tense which just looks back on something and says, this happened. The perfect tense that's recorded here in the Greek adds the idea that this happened and it is still in effect today. This happened and it is still in effect today. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else to pay. You know, the cross isn't just an event consigned to history. It's not just something that we we gather on Good Friday and kind of sing a few songs about and focus our attention upon. 
The cross, the work of the cross, the price that Jesus paid, it's still in effect today. His cross, as we've sung, it's still our freedom. His stripes are still our healing. His blood is still speaking. His love is still reaching to each and every one of us today. When Jesus made the cry, it is finished. It signified the completed work. That he did exactly what he set out to do. That he fulfilled the promise spoken all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden at the fall. That he paid the cost so that the redemption story could be, the work could be completed. As we once again look upon the cross with fresh eyes, we see the cause, we see the cost, we see the completed work, but we also see that there is a call. That there is a call. Perhaps I could get uh, just the worship team to come back up. And it's a call for us to respond to His love, and His mercy, and His grace. As we've sung this morning, as the hymn so beautifully says, that love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. As Paul writes, echoing that theme in in Romans chapter 12, therefore, in view of God's mercies, in view of of the, the, the work of the cross, of the cost, of all that Christ has done, what else could we do but offer ourselves to Him as a living sacrifice? There is a call this morning to run to him instead of running from him and hiding away because of sin or because of shame. There is a call this morning to come to him and confess our sins, not just make excuses, not just shift the blame, not to be in denial, but to confess our sins. For the Bible says he is faithful and he is just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness there is a call this morning to walk in the way opened up to us to have right relationship with the Father and there is a call as well to respond to perhaps the most important question that we will be faced with and I love how Matthew's account of the crucifixion puts it. When Pilate's there, he's going back and forth with the chief priests and elders and all those guys. And he says, well, what shall I do with this Jesus who is called Christ? What shall we do with Jesus who is called Christ? There is a call for us also to consider that question. And to respond. I don't know where each and every one of you are at this morning or joining us online. Perhaps there are some here that you've never considered that question or you've never responded to that call. You never responded to the gift, to the invitation that is given through the cross of Jesus where His blood poured out where He bore our sin and our shame. 
Perhaps you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never invited him to be Lord of your life. Well, this morning, there is a, there is a call and an invitation for you to respond to him. Perhaps you're in a place this morning where you've been running and hiding, where you've been kind of keeping God at arm's length because of sin or because of shame, because of just the past or whatever it might be. What shall you do with Jesus who is called Christ? I pray this morning that you would run to him, not run from him, not keep him at arm's length any longer. This Easter, may we once again look upon the cross of Christ where he died in our place for our sin. And may we see with fresh eyes the cause that there is a sense of gravity of sin that must be dealt with. May we see with fresh eyes the cost, the price that Jesus paid as he gave up his life. May we see with fresh eyes the completed work, that it is finished, that the debt of sin and shame that we owed has been paid in full. That the work of the cross is still in effect. It's still available for us to grab hold of today. And may we see with fresh eyes the call, the response that the cross demands from us or invites us into. Would you stand this morning? We might just finish with a song or at least a chorus. And uh, there's also an invitation this morning to hang around after our service. Uh, we've we've um, got a number of hot cross buns freshly baked this morning from Three Mills. Thank you to Three Mills Bakery. Uh, and we'd love for you to hang around for some fellowship and encourage one another just out in the cafe area out there. But this morning, as we bring our time together to a close, there is that call, there is that invitation. And this morning, if you do not know Jesus, if your life is not right with God, well, I don't want to miss an opportunity to, to give that invitation. It would be my privilege and honor just to, to pray with you, to introduce you to Jesus. And so, as we finish with a, with a song or with a chorus, you're welcome to, to come to the front to respond to Jesus. And I, I'd love, love that opportunity to pray together. So let me pray and then we'll finish up our time. So Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, as we've looked at your word, as we've just focused upon the cross. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. And on this day, we, we just acknowledge and, and remember the cause, the, the issue of sin that needed to be dealt with, our sin. We acknowledge and remember the cost, the price that you paid. We thank you and, and celebrate the, the completed work 
Lord, we want to also respond to that call. That love so amazing, so divine, that demands our soul, our life, our life. So God, as we go from here this morning, may we go with, with grateful hearts. If there is anyone here who does not yet know you, Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would be just drawing their hearts towards you, Lord. And Lord, we look ahead to, to gathering on Sunday, to celebrating that you are alive, that you rose from the grave. I just pray your blessing on each and every person here. In the name of Jesus. Amen.